Hello and welcome to this remote sermon podcast. It's good to be with you today. We're in the middle of a series titled RSVP, An Invitation to Pray with Jesus During Lent, in which we examine the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer. This prayer really is like an invitation. It's a place to start from, just like it helps to have an invite to go to a party. The invitation provides important guidelines, like where the party is happening or what you might need to bring. But if we treat the Lord's Prayer like a rote formula, words that we occasionally recite, then it would be like standing at the door to the party, holding the invitation and reading it over, but never really stepping into the room. The point of the invitation is not only the content it holds, but the manner of life, the way of living that content points us to. And in order to step into that, we have to respond. Dallas Willard talks about how, for three generations, his family recited the Lord's Prayer at the breakfast table. Yet it wasn't until his mid-twenties that he discovered what it meant for the Lord's Prayer to be, quote, a doorway into the praying life. He writes, I began to use it in a new way, taking each phrase of it and slowly and meditatively entering into the depths of its meaning, elaborating within it important details of my current life. The Lord's Prayer is an enduring framework for all praying. You only move beyond it provided you stay within it. It is a powerful lens through which one constantly sees the world as God himself sees it. The Lord's Prayer is an invitation to enter into the prayer life of Jesus himself until we begin to see the world as God sees it. This week, we're looking at the third petition, Your Will Be Done. We'll examine this petition in two parts. First, in the spirit of Lent, let's ask, what are we being invited to release? Secondly, we'll take a look at an example of when Jesus prays this in his own life and take from that a few practical applications. First, when we pray, your will be done, what are we being invited to release and to live into instead? Let's begin with the definition of terms, because in Christian culture, we tend to use the term God's will in a rather specific way. Think about it. When have you heard someone say that? Usually it's something like, I want to know whether it's God's will for me to date this person or not. Is it God's will for me to move or to take that job? As Jen Wilkin puts it, Christians tend to define God's will as certainty in decision-making. What we're saying is, yeah, I know the Bible says God's will is for us to give things, do good, be sanctified, and all that, but what I really want to know is, how should I make this morally ambiguous life decision? If God would just tell me what to do, I would do it. There's lots of problems with that. You don't have to look far in the Bible to realize that when God tells people what to do, it often doesn't lead to obedience or automatic peace. But ultimately, what this reveals is our tendency to focus on our circumstances. We tend to get obsessed with the idea that the main reason we're happy is because of conditions outside of us. So we're obsessed with getting those conditions right. Rather than praying, your will be done, we tend to pray, God, tell me your will. And there's a difference there. What we want is not wisdom, the ability to take facts and apply them to a situation. What we're asking for is knowledge, and not just any kind of knowledge, but a very specific set of facts about the future. And while it's great that we want to please God, I think he's often less concerned about the decision than the decision maker. 
He doesn't tell us to ask for facts about the future that will help us optimize our lives, but for the character and perspective that allow us to grow into the kind of people who have a greater sense of how to make morally ambiguous decisions. We tend to equate God's will with certainty in decision-making, but that's not the definition that we see here in the Lord's Prayer. What is the definition we see? Look at the preceding phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will be done is merely a way of restating your kingdom come. Dallas Willard defines one's kingdom as the range of one's effective will. It's the scope of what you have control or power over. Your body, mind, home, workplace, social media profile, relationships, whatever we can exert our will over is our kingdom. And God has a kingdom too, a kingdom independent of us that has always existed and will always exist. And when Christ came, that kingdom was made available to us. It was there in the body of Jesus as he walked on earth. It will be our eternal reality one day, but it is also now present within us in the hearts and the body of believers. To say, your will be done, is to say, God, I want your kingdom to come into my kingdom. I want your rule over all areas of my influence and being. I want to live out your character and your purposes. I want to experience your power and your presence in all spheres of my life. I want to want what you want. And yeah, that'll affect how I make major life decisions, but it's not primarily and certainly not only about that. In fact, this prayer is an example Jesus gives for regular prayer, how we should pray all the time. He doesn't say, pray that God's will be done when you're facing a major life decision, but pray that God's will be done right before you pray for your daily bread. Pray for God's will to be done daily in your life. It's only in praying for this daily that we become the kind of people with wisdom to make those big decisions when they come. Seeking God's will is not about circumstantial optimization. It's about inner transformation. We have developed a problem with trusting in outcomes rather than trusting in the God of any outcome. We have developed a habit of wanting to control our lives to gain the external things we think will make us happy, but so often those things do not. I can speak for myself. Looking back, so much of my early life was about this idea of arriving. I thought I would arrive once I got into my school of choice or jump through the next hoop in my career, or once I found a husband, had kids, had my own house or cat or dog, the list just goes on. But really, did any of those things make me permanently happy? No. And that's why we have quarter-life crises and midlife crises. Achieving external outcomes does not automatically bring lasting happiness. We can know this in our heads, but for some reason, it's still so hard to believe it in how we live. The fact is, life so often goes out of our control anyway, and then we discover that good can come out of bad, or bad can come out of what we thought would be good. And it's really not so much about orchestrating all the good and bad as being present to God within whatever is happening. No one writes about this in his book, Discernment. He writes, In retrospect, many of the good and important things that have happened to me in life were completely unexpected, and many things that I thought would happen to me did not occur. As I reflect on this reality, it is clear that God is present in the events of my life, yet I act and speak as if I am in control. 
But if the future is not in my hands, then I have all the more reason to stay in the present and give honor and glory to God from where I am. To start seeing that the many events of our day, week, or year are not in the way of our search for a full life, but rather the way to it is a real experience of conversion. This is not to say we don't plan our lives or that God doesn't guide us in specific circumstances. He certainly can, and part of walking with God is learning to discern His will in all the major and ordinary moments in our lives. But ultimately, when we pray, Your will be done, what we are offering is a prayer of release. The focus here is not on figuring out God's will, but on yielding to it. We are surrendering our own agenda, letting go of our need to control. We've all had to let go of being able to control things this past year, haven't we? The pandemic is nothing if not an ongoing exercise in release. We've had to let go of expectations, plans, milestones, relationships, parts of ourselves like activities we loved or spaces we used to have. But this prayer is about letting go of control, not only because circumstances are forcing us to, but because we see someone worth following. That's why it comes after calling God our Father, seeing how holy and amazing He is, and grasping the reality of His kingdom. Then the natural and voluntary response are these words, Your will be done. And we must pray this before we can understand what it means to ask for our daily bread, for what we need for ourselves. It's no accident that the six petitions in the Lord's Prayer are divided like the Ten Commandments, the first half dealing with God, the second half dealing with us. So often we jump too easily to the second half, to the asking, but the order is important. The yielding must happen before the asking can. What do you have to let go of? What area of life would you be living differently if you released your own agenda? One of the things I've had some exposure to lately is dog training, because yes, we did get a pandemic puppy. For one virtual class, we share videotapes of our training sessions and point out things like, look, your posture was sending this nonverbal cue to the dog, or I think the dog offered this behavior due to the location of your reward placement, and so on. There are all kinds of things I had no idea I was doing, but that were having a very real effect on what my dog was learning. If someone who didn't know you came and videotaped you for a week, what would that video show about what agenda you're living for? What would it show about what you care about, what you spend your time and energy on, what gets you the most upset, what you most desire or value? Whether you're aware of it or not, those are the things that are affecting the climate in your home that are what your children are learning or your friends are noticing. For example, if you were to watch my videotape, you would probably conclude that I have my own little kingdom of parenting. In my kingdom, there shall be no kids popping out of their rooms after bedtime. There shall be the ability to read my mind about when it's okay or not okay to interrupt me in my office. There shall be chores and lessons done in the most efficient manner without complaint, and so on. And what I get angry about are interruptions to my kingdom plan. I respond in frustration. I personalize what isn't personal. I jump to quick situational solutions rather than what gets to the heart of the matter. For me to pray, your will be done in my parenting, begins with asking God to give me new eyes to see his kingdom and his will for my children. 
When I do, I often realize that what I see in my kingdom as an interruption, God sees in his kingdom as an opportunity. It's his way of revealing something about their hearts that I need to see and can maybe speak the gospel into. But in order for that to then happen, I have to release my own agenda, my own idea of what success is. When I do, I discover that these so-called interruptions are actually where the important work happens, not only in my kids, but in me. What does it mean for you to release your agenda and ask God's will to be done in your parenting, in your body, through aging or illness, in your sex life, in your friendships, in caregiving for your parents, in your dating life, in how you consume media? If we're honest, this is where the real struggle is, not only in discerning the will of God, but then choosing to do it. Not in knowing who to marry, though that is important, but in living unselfishly with that person every single day after. Not in knowing which job to choose as much as living towards a vision for God's kingdom in that vocation every day after. So now we get to the second question. How do we do this? How do we manage the struggle between God's will and our own? We have an example of a time in Jesus' life when he faced just such a struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus does have his own will? He doesn't automatically will what the Father wills. He has to choose it just as we do. Let's read about that experience and see what we can learn about how to do this. From Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. We see three things from Jesus' experience here. The first thing we learn is that this prayer is something we must practice over space and time. Jesus prays here not once or twice, but three times. He doesn't say after the second time, I'm seeing some progress, God. Or after the third time, I'm feeling up for this cup now. There's no documentable change or immediate outcome. There's just the same prayer repeated in the same space. We know from John 18 too that this garden was a place where Jesus often went with his disciples, probably to pray, so much so that Judas knew where Jesus was most likely to be found that night. Often I find that I let go of my own agenda only to plan or control my way into achieving God's agenda. Not to say that we don't need to plan, but if the key to God's will is not optimization, but transformation, then that is a process I cannot really orchestrate on a conscious level. I cannot write it on my to-do list the way I would anything else. I must approach it in an entirely different way. Jesus talks about his kingdom like a tree that grows from a mustard seed or yeast worked through dough. One can't force a seed to grow into a tree on one's own timetable or make birds come nest in its branches. One can't force yeast to spread through dough. All you need are the right conditions over time. 
If what we seek is transformation, then we need to create those conditions. We need to have a regular space where we spend regular time practicing letting go, where we think upon who God is to us, where we name our fears and our desires, where we release not only our agenda, but the impulses underneath it. Change of this nature cannot be consciously orchestrated, but is also inevitably recognizable. And that is the promise for us. God does this work of transformation in us, and he will, just as surely as the dough will rise and the tree will bud. But we must create the right conditions through regular practice. The second thing we learn is that praying your will be done is something we can't go through alone. All the pronouns in the Lord's Prayer are plural, our Father in heaven, our daily bread. And here in Gethsemane, we see that although the nature of what Jesus is praying is between him and God, he nevertheless does not pray it alone. He asks his disciples to sit with him. Then he takes three of them, Peter and James and John, and shares with them how he's feeling. Jesus is intentional about not being alone, and he is remarkably vulnerable. Nine years ago, I remember reading a New York Times article entitled, Why is it hard to make friends after 30? The basic gist is that it can get harder to make close friends after hitting life stages like marriage, kids, or getting into a career. Our schedules get busier and we lose the repeated, unplanned proximity with people we used to have in college. We have to consider how our friend gets along with our spouse or navigate the awkwardness of getting to know another parent just because our kids want to play together. As we get older, we can get pickier about what we look for in a friend. There are also cultural tendencies at play. We live in an individualized Western culture with a tendency to want to live life on our own, and for many of us, the resources to do it. We tend to hunker down. Every time I park my car in the garage and close the garage door as I'm opening the car door to get out, I think, wow, I could live here for years and not even see who my neighbors are. And then there's COVID, which has forced us to take stock of our friendships. It's brought into relief how much we need people beyond our own four walls, but also how intentional we have to be about it now that we no longer naturally bump into people. It's presented unique opportunities like the chance to connect virtually with people we wouldn't have before, but also challenges like very real Zoom fatigue. The truth is, whether it's from life stage, culture, or COVID, it's easy to find ourselves living life on our own. We tend to parent on our own, manage marriage struggles and work stress on our own, deal with temptation on our own, keep our darkest moments to ourselves. But here, in the most difficult moment, the most private struggle, perhaps, of his life, Jesus not only goes out of his way not to be alone, but is persistent when his friends repeatedly fail him. The fact is, none of this is going to come naturally to us, not in certain life stages, not in our culture, not during COVID. It will only happen if we value it, if we see how important it is and are willing to give things up for it. The next time you're having a hard moment, consider reaching out to someone you trust instead of keeping it to yourself, even if it feels awkward or embarrassing at first. Maybe be willing to take a chance on a hangout, even if it means giving up a more comfortable routine. We have to value walking this journey in God's kingdom with each other because it's not something we're meant to do alone. Lastly, we learn that praying your will be done is lived out through God's love and guidance. Jesus begins his prayer with the same title for God in the Lord's Prayer, Father. But he adds this word, Abba, a word so impossible to translate into the English language that it was left as it was. 
This was the colloquial word for father you'd use every day for your own father. It denotes intimate affection, but also acknowledgement of authority. An Abba is the father that we all deep in our hearts long to have, someone who delights in us, who provides a love we feel completely secure in, someone whose authority we respect and trust, someone we can cry out to. Abba only occurs three times in the Bible, and one of those other times is in Romans 8, where Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That spirit of fear that Paul writes about is real. The idea of giving up control can be terrifying. But we can cry out to the very same Abba Father that Jesus does here because we are his children by grace, which the Holy Spirit himself bears witness to. We can't live into the will of God without the help of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 143 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Jesus says in John 16, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The Holy Spirit isn't some energy we charge up on or some commodity we tap into for our convenience. He is a person with his own mind, his own prayers, his own emotions, his own desires and will. And he is fully God, eternal and holy. He teaches us, comforts us, and he guides us in the way we should go every day. We have an Abba Father we can cry out to. We have the Holy Spirit who guides us. And in the end, we have a Savior who, despite his struggles, lived out a perfect obedience to the Father's will so that we can do the same, so that we can experience God's grace in every circumstance. We can only pray this prayer because Jesus prayed it first. As we end, let me tell you a story about someone named George Matheson who lived in the 1800s. He was a bright young student who graduated at the age of 19 from the University of Glasgow with the intent of entering the ministry. But during his years there, he began to lose his vision, and by the time he graduated, he was functionally blind. When he told his fiancée about his increasing blindness, she broke off the engagement. He never married, and there was indication that he never got over being rejected. He went on to some success in ministry, largely due to the support of his sister, who lived with him and helped him in his life and work. Matheson also wrote hymns, and he wrote his most famous hymn in the space of five minutes one evening when he was 40 years old. His sister had gotten married that day. Something happened to me, he wrote of that night, which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. We can imagine the kind of loneliness and darkness he was facing as his sister was leaving him, the memories of his own rejection that the wedding would have brought. That night, he wrote a hymn that he called The Fruit of That Suffering, and this is how the first stanza goes. O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. That's what we see in Gethsemane, a love that will not let us go, a God we can rest our weary souls in. To say, your will be done, is really only to say, I give thee back the life I owe. We are being given an invitation today to use the Lord's Prayer as a doorway to step into a way of life. What does it mean for you to respond? 
The next time you don't know what to pray, do what Dallas Willard describes. Take each phrase of the Lord's Prayer and meditatively enter into the depths of its meaning. Elaborate within each phrase the important details of your current life. And when you get to this petition, your will be done. Ask yourself, where in my life is my Abba Father inviting me to release my will? How can I live more into his kingdom and the spirits leading today? Who can I ask to sit beside me through it? God, I give you back the life I owe. I rest my weary soul in you. You are the love that will not let me go. May my life be richer and fuller as I pray your will be done. <laughs>